You're listening to the EdUp Experience, where we make education your business. This episode of the EdUp Experience is sponsored by MDT Marketing. MDT Marketing is a team of strategic marketing consultants, digital advertising specialists, and technology system gurus, whose goal is to inspire people to learn, organizations to innovate, and to assist in the eventual democratization of education. They create education, marketing, and technology programs that improve people's lives. To learn more about MDT Marketing and the services they offer, including digital advertising, marketing technology, and targeted messaging and ad campaigns, please visit www.mdt marketing.com that's www.mdtmarketing.com my name is elizabeth liba and i will be bringing you a very special bonus ed up embedded panel discussion on racial inequity in america and the role of higher education to be a catalyst for change with higher ed leaders from all over the country. After witnessing several instances of police brutality, most recently with the death on video of George Floyd, who was killed by a Minnesota police officer, we here at the EdUp Experience have committed ourselves to being voices in the fight for social justice, diversity, and inclusion. My co-hosts and I wanted to bring our listeners comfort and context by showing our support to the Black community and providing a platform for education and raising the voices of our colleagues in higher education on this panel discussion we're sharing with you. Our guests today are Dr. Terry Givens, Don Seabury, Michael Cole, Dr. Terrence Peavy, and Danielle Shelton. Now let's get to it. Welcome to the EdUp Experience, where we make education your business. For today's episode, we have something very special. We know that there's a lot going on right now in our country. We're witnessing uh, a lot of, I would say, uh, really don't even know what to call it, unrest, confusion, people feeling very overwhelmed, people unsure and uncertain as to why things are going on in the way that they are. So we wanna address that. We're higher education leaders and we want to give our input on exactly the state of race in America at this time, exactly what's going on, provide some perspective from our vantage point as educators, hopefully provide an educated standpoint on why some of this is occurring and also give some uh, perspective and feedback as to what we can do as higher education leaders and what we as a society need to do in order to affect meaningful change. We've seen 
protests, we've seen some riots, we've seen even looting. And we wanna try to put that into perspective and understand why that's happening, understand um, the, the precipitator of these events, the George Floyd um, death that we all witnessed on video, but also give it some historical context and talk about what has led up to some of these events over decades or even maybe hundreds of years and, and figure out and unpack exactly what is occurring here. I have an esteemed panel of guests with me today and I thank you all for joining me. Um, I'm Elizabeth Liba and I want to take some time to allow each of my guests to introduce themselves and give you some background on themselves and let you know exactly their experience and, and what they bring to the table in terms of knowledge in the higher education sector. Why don't you kick it off for us, Don? Yeah, uh, good afternoon. My name is Don Seabury. Um, I am the Director of Search Engine Marketing for MDT Marketing. I've been with them between four to five years. Uh, I've been in the marketing space about 15 years, and we work almost exclusively uh, with colleges and universities across the U.S. as well as overseas, um, primarily around marketing lead generation, helping them find students. So higher ed is a world we live in pretty much every day. Absolutely. Thank you for that introduction and thank you for joining us today. Michael, you want to give us some background about yourself as well? Sure. My name is Michael Cole. Uh, I work for Florida Career Colleges. I'm the Regional Vice President of Operations. I oversee the schools in South Florida. I'm also uh, a proud FAPS board member of the Florida Association of Post-Secondary Schools and Colleges. Um, I've worked with Florida Career College now for, uh, well, just over five years, and I've been in space for about 21 years, and I think career education offers a great alternative for higher education, particularly for minority students. I am very proud to serve that sector and give an alternative uh, for a lot of students that I don't think traditional universities actually would, would serve if we didn't exist in the space. So uh, proud to be on here, glad to be have a voice and talk through some of these issues you want to unpack. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you. Dr. Terry Gibbons, why don't you give us a little background about yourself? Yes, and I'll try not to go on too long. I've been doing this stuff for a long time. Um, so I, I got my PhD at UCLA in, in 1999, 2000, and uh, was at the time doing research on the radical right in Europe, but I've also done research on um, anti-discrimination policy, and most recently I have been doing work on the roots of racism, looking at how racism developed going all the way back to the 14, 1500s between, and how ideas about race are really connected between the U.S. and Europe. Um, you may see now that there's protests developing in Europe, and, and that's partly because a lot of the issues around race we see here in the U.S. have their start going back centuries in Europe and are reflected today partly because of colonial histories, but also just general racism. <laughs> um, uh, and then um, I'm also working on a book on radical empathy that is trying to address these divides we have around race. And I've been a professor of political science and also vice provost at the University of Texas at Austin and provost of Menlo College. And I'm currently the CEO and founder of the Center for Higher Education Leadership. Awesome. Thank you, Dr. Gibbons. <laughs> there you go. Thank you for joining us, ma'am. Yes. And finally, last but not least, Danielle Shelton, why don't you give us your bio? All right. So hello, everyone. Um, I've been in education for about 10 years. I have taught higher ed for about, I'm sorry, 20 years. Ooh. 
Twain, ma'am. I know. <laughs> and I have uh, taught higher ed about 10 years. Um, I am getting my feet wet and getting into instructional design now. Um, I have a master's in English and a bachelor's in English. Um, I've authored a couple different projects right now, so I'm, I'm waiting kind of for them to come out. Um, so right now I am teaching a college English. I teach intro to lit. Um, a lot of my um, background is uh, in literature and in history. So um, I am definitely interested to hear uh, from Terry because I love, I'm such a nerd. So I love to hear like the research part of it and the history part of it and, you know, how it ties into literature and how that ties into our students because our students have to be connected to, to um, literary works and, and history. And that's one of the things that I pride myself in is not just giving them assignments and giving them things to do, but connecting them um, and their background to uh, what's important to them. And these issues are important. So um, I currently teach high school. I teach seniors. So I get to see them right before they get out into the real world, like right before they jump in there. Um, so it is my duty just as an educator to make sure that they are prepared, all of them. Absolutely. Thank you all for providing that background and context in terms of how you come to education and, and what you can really bring in terms of knowledge and understanding to our listeners and obviously to the students that you interact with on a daily basis. Um, so let's kick it off by talking about what precipitated um, everything that's happening in the country around us. We obviously all witnessed there was um, a young, a, a gentleman that was um, killed by a law enforcement officer. Um, he's been charged with second degree murder and that uh, precipitated protests and um, even leading up to rioting and looting and, and different things around the country. Uh, let's talk about why this is happening to a certain extent and also what the role of education should be in response to some of those um, these situations. Obviously, if, if there's uh, protesting that typically deals with someone feeling um, uh, disagreement with what's going on. So people are feeling angry. People are feeling like they're not heard. What is the role of education and, and how do we in higher ed respond to, or how have your institutions responded to what they've seen going on around the country? Um, well, I can jump in here really quickly because um, I think protests is the voice of the unheard. I think people are frustrated and they are, are angry. And unfortunately for some people, some people are looking at these protests and looking at these riots and saying, oh, it's just starting with this, you know, gentlemen, but it's not just starting with, with George. And it didn't just start with Trayvon Martin. What was that, almost 10 years ago now? How long ago yeah. was that? So at least it, 10 years ago. At least. So it didn't just start with that. There is a series of things that are taking place. And uh, we have to be mindful of that. And what is happening now and what I see now is the tide has turned and we are dealing with a younger generation that is now pushing back and they are no longer saying that these things are okay because what we have done as a society is we have told them you have a voice, but we don't want them to express the voice that they have. 
and they are expressing it now. So now that we're telling them that they have voice and we've given them the platform and we've given them the power and we've given them all this technology to be able to voice all their opinions and record everything that they do, we can't then turn around and be upset and angry that they're using those voices, that they're using those platforms, that they're using their social media, because these are the things that we created for them. And this is the generation of kids that are coming up and that are seeing injustices and they don't want to sit still. Um, but I think as educators, our job is to teach them how to use those voices effectively. That's the, that's it. Like, how do you use it? in an effective manner, how do you use it constructively so that what you're saying is heard? That's just my, my two cents. And I just want to add you're something. Absolutely right. yeah. Go ahead, go ahead, Dr. Gibbons. Yeah, I was just going to add some context because I think it's important to understand that this generation has grown up in an era where we have African-American studies programs and, you know, they, they, they are a lot more engaged and involved. Um, I mean, when I was growing up, you know, I had to do all the reading on my own. <laughs> you know, nobody was providing a lot of this context. Although when I got to Stanford, I did take a, a class with Clay Jackson, Clayborn, sorry, Clayborn Carson, who um, is editing the King Papers. So that's when I really got my education about what was happening in the 60s and the real story about what was happening in the 60s, not this, you know, these you know, mythologies about MLK and so on. And so I think it's important that we keep in mind that these students are much better at it because of higher education. And the fact that we have more African-American faculty, that we have these programs in place, and you have things like the, the 1619 Project that came out last year. And apologies for the noise, uh, <laughs> we're, we're outdoors and that's my son. But um, in any case, um, you know, we, we have to keep in mind that things like the 1690 project, 1619 project have given us this context of how long this has been going on, that we've been living in this world of white supremacy for so long. And so I think um, that's had a huge impact on students and it's because of higher ed and education that we see a lot of these things. Did you want to jump in, Michael? It looked like you were ready to say something yeah, earlier. I, I think everything I've said there is perfect, I, but I think it's more than that, too. I think that all society has opportunity, and I, I'll even say for myself, I won't speak for the generations or anything else. I, I'm not normally someone that's big on social media. I, I don't do a lot of posting. Uh, I, I think that this was an opportunity. The George Floyd incident, I won't even say it was the straw that broke the camel's back. I saw it as an opportunity that no matter who it was that watched that video, if you're a human being, you knew this was wrong. And, and I think yeah. that, you know, all the other things that have happened before, sure, but there were a lot of people that could justify or say, well, it was because of this or because of that. You couldn't say that with this video. And I think that everybody that watches it that has a soul looks at it and says, I have an opportunity now to make a change. The other videos, the other instances, there were defects. There were problems with the, with the narrative that we were always going to have. There is no flaw to this narrative. There's only one way to see it. And, and again, unless you don't have a soul. So I think this is an opportunity that many people that have been silent now see, wait a minute, this one you can't question. But now we can go back and draw on the experiences of the others and say, it's always been wrong. But now it's in your face. You have to do something about it. You can't kneel on someone's neck for eight minutes and 43 seconds and think that that's okay, no matter who you are. So I, I think that that's part of it. I also agree that education has helped get the students and many people to where they are. But the millennials also have some things that we didn't. 
They've got more readily access, ready, readily accessible uh, to, to social media and to information, true or false, good or bad. But I also think that we've got to give hip hop its due here too. This is the first generation that's grown up primarily on a hip hop culture. I know when I did, yeah, there was Tupac and there were lots of, and frankly, I think better artists. But that being said, this is the generation that's grown up on hip hop. There's a lot more. It's more mainstream. It's more on the radio. You don't have to go in your basement and listen to it because it has the cuss words and worry about mom hearing it. It's, it's everywhere. So I think that this group has become more diverse in the way that it, it, it attracts itself to minorities in general, which is what really does make it uh, enheartening for me to see. I, I love seeing that it's very diverse groups of young people out there protesting. I, I think that it matters that way. I think the role that we play as educators, though, is really, sure, educating, giving them a voice, all of those things are true. But let's be honest, it's establishing some sort of wealth. This is more than just the race thing at this point. This is a social thing. What's made coronavirus impact blacks more than anyone else is social. It's not necessarily race. If you're not attacking the social issue of this and giving people the opportunity to create wealth or put money in their pockets so they can put themselves in better places to live, then it's all for naught anyway. So I think that that's really the role education plays. It's not just the knowledge piece. It's giving them the career and the things that they need to be able to put not only a change for their family, but for generations to come. That's what education does. It changes everything. It changes communities. So I believe at the end of the day, it's not just the education piece, it's the social stance and the social stigma that education helps remove. Absolutely, hear, hear. And Don, you come from the marketing aspect of it. So right. in your observations, when you're looking at universities that are coming out and giving these statements or even businesses, organizations, everyone's kind of coming out and maybe posting something on social media or making statements, do you think it's adequate what's being done? Do schools need to do more? What is the role of a, a university in addressing this in a public manner in terms of what their stance is on some of these social justice issues, policing or inequity in society? Good question. Um, I'll say this, um, you know, George, and this is a conversation I've had with a few people, you know, George Floyd is the symptom of a much larger disease, which is systemic embedded racism. At the end of the day, and, and, and we see that across, um, all, uh, you know, Michael mentioned social, we see that across, uh, you know, every strata of, of American society, whether it's an income inequality, uh, whether it's a difference in how we're policed. Um, and one of the pillars of systemic embedded racism is a lack of educational opportunity, right? Going all the way back to slavery and them not wanting slaves to be able to read. It goes all the way back to that because education is power. It opens up doors to, to opportunity. They don't want that to happen. Um, I'm glad to see what I consider acknowledgement. Uh, and acknowledgement is the first step. But it's by no means the only step. Um, acknowledgement is the first step. Um, conversation, frank, open, honest conversation. Uh, I think is a next step, but at some point, all, all of this, uh, you know, all of the angst and all the motion and all of the energy has to be honed into what are some concrete steps that we can take. I mean, you know, we live in an America where if you look at top tier universities in America, 4% um, of, of the students that are admitted are, are students of color. 26% of students in what they consider lower tier or bottom tier universities 
are people of color. Uh, it goes all the way back to, you know, the educational system, middle school, elementary school, high school. You see $23 billion more in funding to white school districts than you see the African-American or minority school districts. So we have a huge issue that we have to address, and, and not just people that look like us, but, you know, our, our brighter skin counterparts have to come out and start to make noise because, honestly, the voices of the marginalized don't mean quite as much. So just like in the protests where they stand with us and, and the solutions, they have to stand with us, too. I, I think it's a good start, but it's by no means enough. And I don't want anyone to feel good. Hey, we got, you know, they they brought charges against these four guys. Great. For for these four, you know, there are dozens more that did the same thing and they're sitting at home right now and they're free. So it, it's a good start, but it's by, it's by no means enough. Absolutely. Thank you for weighing in on that. And joining us now, we have... Dr. Terrence Peavy, uh, go ahead and we just got started, so you're you're right on time. Why don't you go ahead and give us like a little brief introduction, overview about your biography and and, and your um, experience in higher education. Right. Well, first off, I just want to thank everyone for inviting me, and um, just really uh, happy to not only express um, thoughts but also listen to all the really words that you're you're all sharing about this topic. Um, I've been in higher ed for roughly 27, 28 years. I started back in 1993. Uh, I'm an administrator, uh, really focused more on the enrollment management and mission side. Um, I've worked at now five uh, universities, uh, mostly in the New York metropolitan area. So, uh, so again, I, I think I bring a, a sense of um, understanding of the higher ed space, but then also uh, just bringing, mixing the professional and personal of, of just kind of the way things are going and, and hopefully can add some value in that regard. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us. And I appreciate you you weighing in and, and coming in with your viewpoint as well. Um, Don, I think, brought up a really salient point about acknowledgement. And that's something that I've struggled with, I think, over the past week. What do you say to, you know, people that are kind of questioning this, everything that's going on, and they're saying, well, hey, this is America. This is the land of the free, the home of the brave. Everyone has access to education. Everyone has the ability to go to college if they want to. And I don't see color. So why are people so angry? This, this is just a few bad apples and there you shouldn't really paint everybody with the same brush. How do we address some of that disconnect maybe in understanding? Because I think that's been my biggest, I guess, struggle in terms of trying to educate uh, my fellow uh, professionals. And then in terms of on campus, what can we do to ensure, I know when I was in high school, it was mandatory in high school that you had to take like African-American history. I went to an urban high school, so we were getting African-American history and you know all of that from our, from our teachers anyway. People, it was the 90s. So people were coming to school in kente cloth and people were listening to Tupac and it was a very enlightened time and Rodney King had just happened. Mm. Um, what do we do to educate people that you know, don't really understand when you see people that are in the majority culture and you have my marginalized cultures and they're like, why are they so angry? Why are they upset? What do you, how do you guys respond to some of those? Because um, I'm sure people that are listening may wonder, well, why do we need to have this? Because this is just a couple bad apples. We, don't, we shouldn't be making such a, a big commotion about what's happening here. Um, I, can, I can tell you for sure 
that um, we have to be okay with having the conversation. And sometimes because we are so angry and we are so emotional and we're so upset, sometimes our emotions prevent us from having meaningful dialogue. Um, so my first thing um, is to take a step back to kind of bring the tensions down because people are, are angry and upset. And those that are not angry um, are making light of it and it's hurtful. Um, one of the quotes that I saw from, was it a mayor in Texas? It said something along the lines of, um, if you can say you can't breathe, then you're breathing. And you can breathe. I saw and it was such, to me, it wasn't, what bothered me wasn't really what he said and the ignorance is it in it. What bothered me was just the lack of sheer human compassion. Just the lack that you saw someone being suffocated and you made light of it and you joked about it. But I can remember when I lived in Texas, and I think I, you know this, um, when I lived in Texas, and I taught at San Jacinto College, I would get comments from some of my students like, oh, I'm so glad I met you. I, all, I thought all black people were ignorant, like from my students. And they would be like, oh, I'm so, I'm so glad I met you. You seem so nice. I thought all black women were angry. I thought all black women were upset. My response could have been to act out of character. But my response then was, well, let's talk about that. How many black people do you know? Well, tell me about it. Well, what, like, I think how we respond is what lets people know it's okay to have the conversation. Because what I found and what I really found in Texas, a lot of people are just speaking from a really ignorant place. And for some of them, they thought they were paying me a compliment. They didn't know that what they were saying to me was offensive. So I had to tell them in using compassion that what you're saying to me is offensive so don't say that to someone else um and then get them to a place where it's okay to have a conversation and to me that is where we are in higher ed have to be okay having the conversation yeah i, I would just add you know i really focus on telling stories because i really believe telling stories is important to help people develop empathy and you know we talked about you know, this issue of passion and, and empathy is, is a part of that. And I, I mean, I think we have to go beyond empathy, of course, because we have to get people to understand, but also to take action. But I think part of the, you know, obviously a big part of the problem is education. I lived in Texas for 12 years and I, I completely get what Danielle's talking about because, um, you know, they don't have, you know, I didn't grow up with having African-American studies you know, until I was in college and um, the schools aren't mandated in most states to, to provide that kind of education. And so it's really up to parents and, and you know, people who, are, who care to educate their children. But also um, we have to get people to understand that we live in the sea of white supremacy. <laughs> you know, we have to get people to understand they don't, they may not feel like they're racist, but they are living in a society that has been constructed around white supremacy and racism. <laughs> you know, every single, I mean, I, I, I give the analogy, you know, that, um, you know, think about it. anytime you pick up a book. It, you just assume the characters are white unless it's explicitly stated that those characters are black or Asian. Like the or default. It's like the default. Exactly. Right? Is that right? What's mm -hmm. normal? You know, and, and that's what gets a lot of us frustrated is that, you know, yeah, for women, you know, buying 
you know, uh, uh, you know, bras and panties. I mean, it, nude, you know, what's the color nude? <laughs> you know, I mean, I, there's so many different things that are, you know, you can call those microaggressions because I shouldn't have to walk into a store and see what somebody else has determined is the right color for me or, you know, so on and so forth. And so it surrounds us. And, you know, a lot of people just don't get it. They don't get or maybe they do and there's people who do get it and, and think that's the right way it should be that that you know of course you know i'm white you know white people are smarter white people are better at so many different things i mean i live in silicon valley <laughs> and you look around you and you know I, I i'm railing against this all the time here because it is you know when i was in college at stanford and you know, from 1983 to 87, I thought, oh, this is such a great time. Silicon Valley is opening up and, you know, there's so many people of color in California. They're going to be able to be a part of this. And I come back 20 years later and 30 years later and, you know, nothing. I mean, you know, we're still struggling to try and be, get a piece of the pie. And so, I mean, you have to, we have to keep pointing out to people that we're more likely to get killed by the police, that we're less likely to get a good education. I mean, you can see it right here where I live. I mean, you know, there's the East Palo Alto and Palo Alto and the dichotomy couldn't be greater. We have some of the biggest inequality in the country right here. <laughs> and so um, if people here don't get it, then I don't know who will. Absolutely. I think it's a couple of things though that you, you have to look at when, when you think about how, how do we communicate this? How do we make it better? I'll tell you, one of the things that I've learned is the folks that are making the jokes about the masks, I'm not going to even bother with the dialogue because it's not going anywhere. Their mind has already been made up as to what they think and how they feel about it. And, and frankly, that's not the opinion that I'm interested in changing. I'm looking for the ones that do think it's wrong but don't know why it's wrong or don't know how to explain why it's wrong. I, I'll talk to them because those are the ones that I need to, to live in this country. So I, I need to make this country better, right? And I think the one great thing about America, many great things about America, but one of the great things is it's still a democracy. So I don't, need, I don't need it to be unanimous. I just need the majority to see what I see. So we have that ability to kind of take ourselves away from the ones that are going to make us angry because you said it perfectly. If, if you allow the emotion to dictate the dialogue, we're not going to get the point across. And, and frankly, I, I learned this lesson as a young boy. I, I was the only one that was clearly black at, at my school. And so I was called every name and, and under the book. And these guys were my friends during the day until they went home. And then I was everything and anything. I got into a lot of fights. I had an uncle that had said to me, Michael, if you really want to make these guys angry, smile at them and tell them thank you. And I thought, Uncle Put, you're absolutely crazy. I can't do that. But I did it. And not only did it make them angrier because I wasn't fighting back, it started to make younger people think, why am I being mean to this kid when he's never nasty to me? And I didn't understand that. And, you know, in society, you're taught you've got to fight back. You've got to fight back. And you know what? The unfortunate reality is even though we're the ones that are wrong, we've got to be able to control our emotions. Otherwise, we give the people what they want every single time. And you can't have dialogue once you've breached that stereotype that we're the ones that are loud, that we're the ones that can't control ourselves. And, and we need that side to see it differently. And, and I think you can do that, but it's got to be controlling emotion and realizing those that are making the jokes, they're trying to light your fuse anyway. You're not going to change their mind. Talk to the ones that want to truly understand. And I think you're right about telling stories. Uh, I'm biracial and, and my, my cousin happens to be white and he loves to retweet, retweet Donald Trump, or at least did. The George Floyd thing happened and we, we, my brother and I saw it and we said, oh, Matt, you know, you got you to knock this off. You know, this is crazy. 
And, and at first he fought back and said the same thing everybody says, you know, oh, the riots are just as bad and this is just as bad. And my brother said to him, you know, I want you to think about it for a minute. My brother, your cousin, who we both know that you love, if it were his, his neck under that knee, would you feel the same way that you feel right now? Right. My cousin immediately said, you know what? You're 100% right. I quit. And then started retweeting, retweeting Black Lives Matter and things like that. The stories matter. You have to personalize it. Look, everybody has that quote unquote black friend. You've got to be able to make them see that black friend and all the injustices that are happening so that they can personalize this. Otherwise, you're right. It doesn't change. But the ones that make jokes, they don't have that real black friend anyway. So it's not going to change through those ones. It's going to change through the ones that really do care. They just don't know how to articulate it. I, I would just add to that, you know, though, I, you know, in, in, I mean, I'm exceptional in some ways, but I want my white friends to understand that I am not exceptional in the sense that I, you know, I was lucky. I got a lot of, you know, mentoring and things along the way, but, you know, it doesn't mean that there aren't, you know, a hundred thousand other girls like me out there who, if given the same opportunities, right. would be, you know, in the same position that I am. And so, you know, there's, it's kind of the tokenism, right? It's like, oh, you're the one who, and, and, and we've got to, you know, I mean, it's important to have, I, we're also not just tokens, we're also the people who are opening doors. You know, I've been the first black woman in almost every single position I have ever held. But my goal is not to be the only right? I mean, Obama was the first black president. We don't want him to be the only black president. And so we have these role, and you know, and I, I clearly understand I am a role model, but my job as an educator and just a human being is to make sure that I'm preparing the path for those. And, and it's, okay, you know, I want the, the girl who's loud and angry to have the same opportunities that I have, right? I mean, I, you know, we shouldn't be in, in, you know, telling people that they can't be who they are. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, I think there's, that's there's just, a fine line between that, right? Because a lot of yeah. people I've seen have been critical about the rioters. The rioters are too angry. The rioters are looting. The rioters are provoking the police. And I'm like, there's not as much discussion about that man that casually with his hand in his pocket laid his knee and ground somebody's neck into the ground for eight minutes. I don't see as much right. outrage as about somebody grabbing some, a TV out of Target, which obviously we're not going to say that's right. But obviously, you know, there, there needs to be some understanding, I think, of some of the, we talked about the acknowledgement. Sometimes it seems as though the burden is always on the victim to have self-control. I think that part of the narrative has been a, a, a bitter pill to swallow. Somebody had posed a question, I think, um, on LinkedIn, maybe yesterday or the day before. Why are people looting? Why are they destroying their own neighborhood? And there was a really interesting article that was posted by the Brookings, Brook, Brookings Institute um, about the fact that the neighborhoods are so devalued that people just don't seem to, there's, there's a disconnect there where they just feel like, well, I don't even, I don't care. My body is not worth anything. My neighborhood isn't worth anything. I don't have any investment and my house isn't worth anything. And, and, and it's almost like, it's almost like a, when a toddler throws their toys on the ground, I don't want to compare us to a toddler or people to a toddler. Um, but you almost get that, almost that frustration of nothing is going to change. And I think it goes back to what, um, Dr. Gibbons gave us some historical perspective earlier about this is not something that just started and Daniel alluded to it. it's not just started with 
George Floyd, this is something that's going back decades and even generations and even hundreds of years starting from the very beginning of this country. And I think that's a hard lesson for a lot of people that are in the, 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 the dominant culture to really accept because it means that this whole country was founded on ideals that really don't match with um, what this country is supposed to be. And it's, some, it's a reality that we obviously have to navigate every day of our lives that what where we're living in the country that we uh, are residing in was started and founded on a concept that we as black people were not human. We were mm -hmm. considered property and slaves. And we it took all the way up until 1865 for that to change. And then we had Jim Crow in segregation for another hundred years after that. There are people amongst us, even on this panel, that probably have parents or grandparents that went to segregated schools. So we're, we're in, um, this is not, I think sometimes the, the frustration that I have, and I'm not gonna pontificate too much because I wanna get you guys to, and I want Dr. Peavy to jump in with the enrollment aspect of it and, and the student body aspect of it. But I think some of the frustration for me is that it, it, it's, it's made to appear as though the frustration is not warranted because America has changed so much. But like Dr. Gibbons said, we just had one black president. What about the other, <laughs> what's yeah. been happening for the, the, whole, the whole duration of the, the, this country? It's, yeah. it's, it's very sometimes confusing as to why people seem to not understand that frustration. No one's, what I think there's one, just one quick point before I sure. I'll hand it off, but okay. So I think that the, the perfect image is you've got Colin Kaepernick kneeling peacefully in protest. And then here we are five years later and you've got a policeman kneeling on the neck of George Floyd. That is the, the you know, over here we were peaceful. You know, he was basically banned from NFL because of that. We have a police officer kneeling on the neck of a man and we're, you know, pe peaceful didn't work. That's, that's the image. Absolutely. That's Thank right. My you. grandmother said, you speak to the man in a language he understands. So I think a lot of the looting and the rioting comes just, just from that. We, we tried talking, we tried knocking, eventually you break the door down, right? So I think that that's where it's at. And trust me, I don't want anybody to give up who they are and what makes us all proud to be black. But at the same time, I believe that this isn't one of those moments where we need to be right. We need to get it right. So for me, however that means the dialogue has to happen, I, I think we've got to make sure that we use this opportunity to get this right because I don't, I think this is, and, I, and maybe I'm overthinking it, I think this is one of those once in a lifetime changes, that, opportunities where people are listening, the right people are listening. And if we don't get it right this time, the I message. don't know that we will. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I absolutely do agree with you. Let me throw this in too, uh, Elizabeth. I mean, as it relates to looters and rioters, because like that's a go-to, right? As soon as you start having the, the conversation about the protest, don't want to talk about George Floyd. You want to talk about looting and rioting because it's easier to look at that than it is to actually look at the real issue. Um, and, and we all know about the intentional instigation. You know, agent provocateurs who are trying to take advantage of the situation, get in, and and, and really just just like with when Black uh, Lives Matter first started in Ferguson, they got in the middle of it to, to try to discredit the movement in the beginning and nullify its influence. But you know, there's there's another piece of it. You know, there's a Christian proverb that I like that says, "Hope deferred makes the heart sick." So when there's no hope, people get sick. And, and we're talking about, like we mentioned earlier, systemic racism that's happened over 
400 plus years, but the difference, and I'd say probably the last 20 years, uh, Dr. Cole brought it up, is access to information. So we have access to technology. We have video. And if you think about it, after Trayvon, there was a period, it seemed like every month, this image was in front of us. And it was a different person every time. And it's almost like it had to reach a point where people were, you know, somebody getting shot to death, maybe because that was so fast, you know, that didn't strike the soul the way it should have struck the soul, which is mind-boggling to even say that. I actually just said that out loud. But maybe it, it took, for some people, having to watch a person slowly die out over an 846-second period before their conscience actually stood up. But when you have hopeless people and you didn't listen to peaceful protest. Now, I always say, and you know, some might say this is a little blunt, but I don't feel that the oppressor has a right to legislate how the oppressed responds or how they protest their oppression. That's just my personal opinion. Um, but you know, you, you have a, a, a group of, of younger people now that says, well, you haven't listened to anything else. We don't feel like we have hope. We're trapped in the system, so we're just gonna rebel. It is what it is. Just as a reminder, this episode of the Ed Up Experience is sponsored by MDT Marketing. MDT Marketing is a team of strategic marketing consultants, digital advertising specialists, and technology system gurus, whose goal is to inspire people to learn, organizations to innovate, and to assist in the eventual democratization of education. They create education, marketing, and technology programs that improve people's lives. To learn more about MDT Marketing and the services they offer, including digital advertising, marketing technology, and targeted messaging and ad campaigns, please visit www.mdtmarketing.com. Once again, that's www.mdtmarketing.com. Dr. Peavy, why don't you jump in as well and, and give us some perspective in terms of on campus. We're seeing the student body is growing more um, diverse. Um, uh, Don threw out some uh, numbers in terms of the enrollment of students, obviously um, still lacking in some of the, uh, the the more selective universities in terms of the percentages, but we are seeing with the the, the increased enrollment of online institutions, non-traditional programs, the access has increased for um, Black students and students of, of uh, color. How do we support these students and, and what do we do to increase diversity on campuses so that we can open up the doors, the doors that Dr. Gibbons talked about, giving some of these young people more access to education so that they can move forward and, and be more a part of um, some of the opportunities in society. Well, de definitely, it's, um, it's a very layered process. Uh, I think one of the things that colleges um, sort of miss when they uh, focus in on diversity or the recruitment of people of color 
is just that the recruitment of people of color and and just say hey we have them here we've uh we've gotten to our number let's get more but not looking at it in this kind of uh, comprehensive student life cycle of once you actually uh recruit students of color what type of environment are you bringing them into what level of um, receptiveness is, has the community made to committing to that um, that group uh, and of course looking to make sure that they're persisting to graduate not saying hey, we brought in 50% uh, more um, students of color and they just didn't make it and oh well, we tried. Um, so I think we've become a lot more sophisticated in that regard and I think there are obviously some colleges that do it much better than others, but it's really looking at that student and saying, once I engage you, once I share the information about my institution, about the academic programs that we offer, how we're gonna make you successful, Yes, the classroom is a big piece of it, but the outside the classroom part is probably the part where you're going to learn more than what you learn in the classroom. Um, and I think for me, just being a person who went through that process uh, way back in the 80s, um, I was sort of dropped off. Like I, I, they were really nice to me and I and, uh, got these phone calls and then I applied, I got accepted. And then when I got to campus, I was like, wow, there's only 17 people that look like me out of a student body of 2,500. I missed that in the view book. <laughs> you know, in the view book, it looked like it was um, Hillman College. Um, and so I always felt that, and honestly, when I came to college, I didn't know I was going to be in enrollment management, uh, you know, 30 some odd years later. But that sort of, that sort of stayed with me as I, as I started my recruitment uh, and admissions enrollment careers that it's not about just getting students so interested that they come to the school. It's really providing an opportunity to support them. So, so again, I, I think it's a 360 approach. And um, and what I'm seeing today, you know, having now been on the campus for 27 years straight, um, there are some cult there are some campuses that have cultures that support uh, people of color and also provide a voice for them, as opposed to suppressing them or saying no, no, you're, that's just the way you feel, and just kind of ignoring you know all these other undertones of um, of microaggressions and, and a wide variety of different things. So I feel like it's a space, uh, a sort of safe space for students to kind of understand who they are and maybe even confirm that. Um, because honestly, when I went to school, I took for granted that um, that I was African-American and all the things that I just don't even think about, like getting a haircut, the types of food I eat, you know, music, like it's always gonna be with me. And then I go to college and I was just like, and this is before internet, I wanna put that out there. I'm like, where do I get my haircut? You know, where do I? So I'm, I'm looking through a big phone books and they don't say I cut black hair. They just say I'm a barber. And you walk in and you're like, the music stops. And you're like, okay, I'm in the wrong spot. <laughs> so, so, so now I think there's a lot more resources, social media, students talk to each other, people know each other. So it's really more of a, of, of a tight network. So um, and just one story that I think this kind of ties into some of the, uh, some of the images that were drawn earlier when we we're talking about you know, how do, we, how do we make this better and have this space where we can talk. Uh, my first day in college, um, did the orientation, everything was great, lots of cookies, balloons, and all that good stuff. So I sit in my first class, which was a sociology class, and for whatever reason, this first day, we're talking about race. And so I was the only person of color, excuse me, I was the only black person in the class. And then when the professor, who was not black, said, black people, and she gave kind of a generic kind of description, she goes, Terrence, do um, you have any words? And I said, wow, I, I didn't realize on my first day of class, I'd be teaching it. I came here to learn. And she sort of laughed, but she didn't like my, my kind of attitude. But honestly, I never stopped teaching after that. I taught for four years. Um, I'm in clubs and activities, walking across campus. And people coming up to me, similar to um, the other panelists who said, well, I've never met a Black person before. And I thought, uh, well, I've only seen Black people on TV. And I thought, 
And honestly, I didn't, I didn't come to college to, to educate uh, other people about uh, race and ethnicity. If anything, I thought I was being educated since I was kind of taken out of my African-American community and then plopped into a, you know, to a community that was not like mine. Um, but, but that education definitely happens. And I think it happens today, you know, when, when uh, students are in class and they're talking to each other, that is breaking down some of the stereotypes that unfortunately may have been ingrained before they even step foot on campus. So that has to continue. And I think colleges have to acknowledge that and provide a space for that type of exchange, sometimes around the academic subject, sometimes not, sometimes around these issues that are happening around us right now. Absolutely. Thank you for weighing in on that. And, and sometimes I think that's a question I always have uh, because that statistic gets thrown out a lot, you know, when we're recruiting these students and they were becoming maybe the first generation students, you know, when my parents, they never went to college. So they don't necessarily have the skills or the context and maybe, um, you know, maybe smart, but don't have the study skills. Are we doing enough in higher education to support and retain our black students and, and give them the ability to graduate. Okay, you got there, like Dr. Peavy said, you're here, but then now if you don't feel comfortable or you don't have a, a support network, what, what say you, Dr. Dr. Gibbons? Is, is there support uh, there? The yeah, the answer is no, we're not doing enough to retain our students. If you look at the graduate, there's huge disparities in the graduation rate, okay? And the reason for that is because, you know, African American and other students of color, you know, get to campuses and, you know, they need resources, they need culture, they need, you know, other students to connect with. And, you know, I have to say, I was um, uh, somewhat proud of the University of Texas at Austin because they did start a program when I was a vice provost there and actually it started in the late 90s when they first had the ruling Supreme Court ruling about uh, uh, in, you know, affirmative action, basically. And so they started a program that gave students that you know, extra counseling, um, you know, special classes, uh, you know, just a, a, a kind of what uh, Terrence was saying, a, a 360 support system. Um, now it's, you know, been moderately successful. It's gotten some, you know, attention from the media, but you know, that's the kind of thing we, we have to invest in and we have to invest in these students. We have, you know, the problem with higher ed is it's too, you know, especially at the R1, you know, research, top research institutions, it's like a weed out system. You know, it's like, oh, you know, they can't pass calculus, they, they can't classes English class, too bad, you know, you fail out. And, you know, part of the problem, you know, I was a first generation student, you know, here I was at Stanford, you know, I had to work, you know, I was working, by the time I got to junior, senior year, I was working 20, 30 hours a week. Um, you know, I ran track my first two years, you know, I was trying to keep a full load of classes, I, I made it. But, you know, I, at, at least at Stanford, I had a lot of mentors, a lot of people around me who, who helped out. But a lot of these students going to these bigger institutions don't have that structure around them. And so every single college campus on this in this country needs to make sure that they are providing the structure and, you know, the, the kind of opportunities that these students need because we have to focus on success, not, I mean, you'll hear a lot of people talk about student success, but unfortunately for a lot of the you know, I, I still see this amongst faculty. It's like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to bend over backwards. You know, that student, you know, they're, they're, you know they, they're working. They shouldn't be working so many hours. Like, they have no idea what that student is going through. They may, they have, they're probably sending money back to their family. And so, you know, it's, you know, there's too much to, to talk about here. That's very complicated issue. But the, the, the main point I want to make is that we have to invest in the students and students have to be the center and focus of higher education. And in, in many institutions, that is not the case. And so that's why I'm, I'm fighting to change that. Um, and I just wanted to, to jump in really quickly 
and uh, talk about our HBCUs because one of them- I was just about to ask you that because you <laughs> went to FAMU. So give us your perspective on the HBCU aspect yes. of it. One of the misnomers that I get from my high school seniors, and this is why I love doing um, high school and college, because one of the misnomers that I get is we have told our, our students, we've told our children that going to a HBCU makes them less than attending another university. And a lot of our students, and I have even argued, argued with parents because their child wanted to go to an HBCU. I had one mom, she was very adamant. Herself. And for those that don't know what an HBCU is. Oh yeah, sorry. <laughs> Historically Black College and University. Um, I have argued and I had a student who, who mom did not want her son to attend Howard. And he had a full ride scholarship and he had a 4.0 GPA and he was a scholar and that is just where his heart was and that's where he wanted to go. And she was like, how dare you encourage him to go to Howard when he could get into, and she named all of these other universities. And um, she really was upset with me that I would encourage him to uh, seek out his own. And I, I stay kind of in that battle and I stay in that fight. I did attend Florida A&M University. So I didn't have, um, that experience that, that Terrence had. When I went, everyone that was there looked like me. And all of my instructors, the majority, looked like me. Um, and the bar was high. And that's the one thing that I could say. The bar was very high and it was set. It was, it was and there was like an understanding, like you're young, you're black, you're educated, you have to be twice as smart, you have to study twice as hard. My professors did not let us slack. They did not let us, like they were, and then they would even break it down to like how you came to class. I can remember sitting in, in one class and one girl came to class in her pajamas and the professor like ripped her a new one. And it's like, that is not how you represent yourself. And that is not how, and I was just like, whoa. It was just, it was one of those moments that let me know, you know what, this is really, serious but i was happy to have that because when i left i was in such a world that i was like holy crap i'm so glad i had that support and not only that i have people that i've connected with that i can reach back out to when things are getting rough and when things are getting hard and when i'm feeling discriminated against and when i'm feeling you know hurt and frustrated i have connections and i have people that i can reach out to Every student doesn't have that. And I think one of our responsibilities is to allow our students and let our kids know just because you attend um, a historically black college or university doesn't mean you're getting a lesser education. It's okay. We have to teach them to stop looking for the validation of a Florida state or um, to stop looking for that validation of an Ivy League school because you attended this Ivy League. Now this is what you should aim for. Like we have to be realistic about what they should expect when they get out here. And I feel like we need to prepare them. And sometimes we fail to prepare them because we make them think that they should be getting an education from people who don't look like them. So that disconnect exists. Absolutely. For what it's worth, I think you went to the best school by far in Tallahassee, by the way. <laughs> there you go. And, and, and what about, um, Michael, what about career colleges? 
What about um, the role that they play in terms of mobility? My, my parents didn't go to college, but they did go to vocational school. And my mom was a nurse and my dad was a mechanic. So they did trades. What role um, do uh, career colleges play in terms of setting our black and um, other students of color up for success where they may not necessarily be college bound? So loaded question for me. I, I think to answer your original question, I think we all need to do better in resources for minority students, period. But I think the, the career education space does better than a lot, to be very honest. And I think that the biggest role that we're able to play is, is to get them ready for work and transition. I, I tell my students here all the time that the, the most important lesson that we teach, you're not going to find in a textbook. We're, we're teaching professionalism because a lot of our students come to us without an idea of what professional dress, without, what, without the idea of what a resume looks like, without how to conduct yourself on that. And we're able to give them the resources to put them in a position for that. What I would love to see happen from career schools is a better articulation between the career schools to the traditional schools and to the HBCUs, to be honest with you. I, I think that that's where we kind of lose our, our worth. And we think that everyone needs to go to community colleges instead of career schools. And that's how you're gonna transfer your credits, et cetera, et cetera. And I think you, you cheapen the experience for, for a lot of minority students in doing that. I think that it doesn't need to be an end. I myself went to a career school. I, I, I like to tell people at my core, I'm just a pharmacy technician from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Luckily for me, I found someone that would take an articulation agreement and I, and I parlayed that to a master's degree. And now I run schools that I went to and learned from. So I, I think that when you're given opportunities, you, you can do a lot with it. But if this is the, the beginning step, great. But if it's the end step, that could be okay too. I think what we are able to do is that. I think we prepare folks to be ready for what's going to be awaiting them when they come out. And I think we honestly do that better than a lot of the traditional schools. Um, but could we get better? Sure. And I think where we can, uh, we can absolutely improve is making sure that we make up for a lot of the O's of, of the under of the, uh, not the, not the secondary schools, the not the higher ed schools where we do get a lot of students that are challenged with reading. We do get a lot of students that are challenged with, with basic skills. And I think we do okay and in, in, in getting them up to speed and getting them. But I think that that's where the bigger challenge lies is how do we make up for what happened prior to getting into higher education? I, I think there's an opportunity there. And again, I think we do it okay, but there's always a room to be better for that. Point. And then I guess to circle back around, because I think Don had mentioned this in the very beginning in terms of practical steps and what we need from uh, our allies or, or what we can do in terms of affecting meaningful change. Why don't you kick that off first, Don? What are some things that as far as everything that's been going on, the unrest, um, people feeling frustrated, us as higher education professionals not knowing exactly what we can do to affect meaningful change. How can we do that and how do we educate um, our allies if they are interested in joining with us so that we can create a society where the opportunities are there and this frustration and, and a lot of this racial inequity is not so woven into the fabric of American life. You guys still hear me okay? I had to yeah. die, so I'm on speaker. Am I good? Um, that, that is a really, that's a tough question. Uh, and, and the reason I say that, that's a tough question is um, I had a conversation, for example, with my CEO uh, Monday of this week. 
um, because we had done a call similar to this company meeting, and he was concerned because he's like, you didn't seem like yourself on the call. And that led, obviously, to the conversation about what was going on in the country. Um, one of the things that, that Michael said is being able to communicate being too emotional. Um, so he and I had a really good conversation that led to him saying, okay, what can I do to fix it? And I had to, I had to step back and say, okay, Mitch, that, that's really oversimplifying it because there's not just one thing you can do to really fix it. But where you can start is you have a sphere of influence, especially as a CEO that I don't have. You run in a circle that's different from my circle. Um, most of the circle doesn't look like us. So there's an opportunity for you that when you're in your circle, number one, you need to come out now and speak directly to what's happening in the country at the moment, which you did. Um, but when you're in your circle, when you're in your group, um, and there is no social media there, there's no camera on, there's no phones on, and you guys are just interacting, you know, the, the police say, when see something, say something. So when you see something that you know is not right, you say something. Um, pressure coming from us is one thing. Pressure coming from your peer group is completely a different thing. Uh, another thing that I think is critically important is uh, what Danielle was referencing. I think it's critical that she's actually in high school teaching our kids in high school. Um, I was in high school. I was a very good student. I was a North Carolina scholar. My, my guidance counselor sat down with me, never had one conversation with me about scholarship. She never had one conversation with me about grants. I had like a 3.7, 3.8 grade point average. Um, she never had a conversation with me about HBCUs. So instead, since I lived near Fort Bragg, North Carolina, I spent the next six and a half years in the military, which I don't regret. And then afterwards, after I got out of the military and got into the workforce, then I, you know, I was able to go back to school, get degrees, that type of thing. Um, it's critical that, number one, we're responsible when we're in those positions because my guidance counselor was a black woman, an older black woman. So I should have been able to expect better from her. I'm just being honest. Um, when we're in those positions, um, you know, educate. Make sure our kids are informed because a lot of times they don't know. Um, I don't have kids, but I have young men that look like me that I mentor. I make it my business to mentor them. And we sit down and we have open, honest, frank conversations, not just about racism, but about areas, you know, in my field marketing. What's hot? Data analysis, data science. You know, what are those areas that you can get into um, where your skill can open a door for you to be able to move up and then get in a position where you can pull the next person up. And, and I think as far as just us within higher ed, that's a great place to start. As far as, because we've talked about, uh, and, and Dr. Gibbons talked about that as well, our ability to open up doors. How do you guys feel about the dearth of leadership in higher education when you don't see a lot of people, black or women or um, minority, it just seems to be just very, just the same, um, not reflective of the student body a lot of the time. What, what can we do to change that? 
uh, having been a provost and <laughs> decided and having decided to leave academe after that experience um you know the the biggest change that has to happen in higher ed if you're going to see more leadership is the boards of trustees and boards of regents because they're the ones picking the presidents and the presidents are the one picking the provosts and if we don't get people of color on those boards of regents and um boards of trustees then you know we're, that's why you're seeing this perpetuation you know of you know, it's hard for a woman to be a president, let alone an African-American woman. You know, people are always like, oh, Terry would be a great pre college president. I'm like, yeah, I, I get a lot of interviews. Uh, and I, I, when I was a provost, I got a lot of interviews, but I was, you know, a lot of time I just was just feeling like, oh, okay, they found a black person to bring in to interview, but they didn't take my interview seriously. So, um, you know, so I, that was a very frustrating experience. And, you know, what, so I, I, I that's, Part of my push as well is I, we have to educate and change the way boards of regents work because otherwise we're just it's impossible that's a very top-down thing right you can't it's hard to change from the bottom up and students have been out there protesting you know when when they hire a, a white male as a president or a provost they're out there protesting saying no why aren't you hiring a woman why aren't you hiring a person of color um so the students are pushing for it that's not the issue it's that you know it's it's the other end of the spectrum that has to decide that that there's going to be change absolutely and and like you said it's, it comes from the top down that the students want it but the students don't really have the power or they they're trying to exert their voice and let their voice be heard but it's kind of like it just kicks up a fuss for that week and then it's back to business as usual which is why we really wanted to um, amplify our voices at this time. I think Michael or Don said this very well, that this is an opportunity. People are listening and let's get some of these ideas and some of these um, frank discussions and some of these concerns out there so people can understand because a lot of people don't understand. Maybe they haven't been exposed to it or they just are in their own bubble and they don't think about it. But now, you know, this is the time to think about it so we can make change. And, and if people are ignorant to it, just because they've never been exposed, now is the time to be aware so that you can lend your voice and you can help us so that we can um, develop an even playing field for everybody that comes to the table. Um, Dr. Peavy, why don't you kick us off and tell us what you think as we wrap up about the future of higher education? What does it look like? And what should we do to navigate in terms of equity, diversity, society, and our role in making it um, better for the future generations to come? I actually grapple with that question often, um, only because every school that I've been to, uh, and probably schools that I'll eventually work at, will, will kind of put their hat on this thing called tradition. Um, tradition is great. It's something we've been doing for years. This is what makes us unique. This is what makes us different. But I also feel like that's almost a guided word for like, we don't want to change. We, this is what we've been doing. It's a formula that works for us and we're not going to shift from it. So I find that whenever I go to a place and I hear these kind of ironclad things that we always do, um, I become this, this person who's always kind of poking the bear as to saying, well, why? You know, because I have not been at this place for 150 years, um, so I can't speak to the tradition, but typically enrollment managers are, are outward facing and always bringing that uh, kind of like real world um, to the moment kind of comparison of 
here's the market. Here's what we need to do. We need to work with the provost to, you know, build programs that are hot. Um, so we're always the agitators. Um, and again, not in an aggressive way, but basically saying this is what we know. And if we're looking five years out, we need to start working now. So, so to your point, um, I think higher ed it's, and COVID-19 honestly has really um, kind of ripped the bandaid off, um, you know, making uh, institutions do a lot of things they probably wouldn't have done otherwise. Um, you know, and so I feel like this has now probably gotten their foot in the water a little bit. And um, some will take it out, dry it off and go back to where they were if they can. Uh, but honestly, a, a number of institutions for survival's sake uh, will have to change and change very quickly. So um, that's looking at the modalities differently. Uh, just saying that um, having a professor stay in front of the class for an hour and a half and, and lecture, uh, that's not probably the most current way and the way that students want to take information. Uh, they want to be a little bit more interactive and, and just a variety of the, the ways that information is given to them. Um, I think we really need to get arms around cost and to kind of justify why uh, you know, a place is uh, 80, dollars $90,000 a year and they're not giving out aid and they're sitting on um, uh, an endowment that's uh, bigger than some second world, third world countries. Um, and also I think they need to be realistic about the connection between what is taught in higher ed and, and how that equates to the companies, the industries, the sectors that they're preparing students to. Um, I've had some frank conversations with individuals, uh, with companies who said, yeah, we, we get kids from this school every, every year and we take, Get, go, take them through our training program, scrub them off, and then they're fine. So it's almost uh, to the students like, well, why did I invest four years of my life and um, a ton of money for loans if basically that wasn't what this company is looking for? So I think higher ed really is in a, in a space now because they had to really look at change in a very different way and very fast, but they should not kind of lose this, um, this mindset because uh, for, for a number of schools, they may not be around in about five to seven years because of just their, um, their penchant to stay with tradition. Exactly. Absolutely. Anybody else want to weigh in on that? that way, Absolutely. We were already headed that way before COVID-19. Mm -hmm. If you take a look, a lot of the smaller uh, schools were going under because enrollment numbers are way down. I, I think that higher ed has to acknowledge that, and yes, you're right, COVID-19 has helped. It's, it's ran us a little bit more robust in distance learning, and, and it's made internet learning all of a sudden very acceptable when it hadn't been for years, right? For for a long, long time, this was, was the, the master child of proprietary schools. Now, now it's very relevant because it has to be. Uh, but I'll, I'll tell you, until schools overall can figure out how to become more relevant than the internet, the enrollment numbers are in trouble because there are a lot of school, there are a lot of uh, millennials in particular that are graduating and are thinking, why in the world am I gonna put myself in debt when I can learn everything I need to from my phone? And you know, whether it's true or not doesn't matter, it's their truth. So that's all that matters for, for us that are in the business, right? So we've got to figure out, to your point, how, how do we get more hands-on? How do we teach more useful skills? And how do we do it in a way that's going to edutain our students? Because that's what they want. Like I said, they can get it fast. They can get it better. They can get it cheaper. If we don't address it, COVID-19 or otherwise, tradition is going to keep us in a world of trouble in higher education. Absolutely agreed. Dr. Gibbons? Yeah, I agree exactly with what you guys are saying. But, you know, we have to keep in mind that the institutions that are, are going to fail sometime in the next five to seven years, if we don't in, intervene, are the institutions that are educating most of our, you know, the vast majority of black, brown, and, and you know, low-income students. Yeah. And so, you know, I think it's really critical that we, you know, focus on, you know, to a certain extent on the public institutions or the community colleges, the state colleges, the regional colleges. That's where most of, at, frankly, 
the majority, a vast majority of students are getting educated, period. And then I, I do believe that we need to support the small privates as well, and especially the HBCUs. And you know, I've been doing some research into this and they're all in a lot of trouble financially. And so something's gotta happen, you know, and, and we gotta pay, pay attention to this and it can't just be raising tuition because these, right. the kids can't bear anymore. <laughs> You know, and so there's going to have to be a whole change about how we, we look at this. And, you know, I don't want to see faculty losing jobs. We, we got to focus on making sure the faculty keep their jobs, but that we, you know, we may have to give up some of these traditions, like you're saying. Maybe athletics, you know, is one of those things. And frankly, I, I have, you know, I was an athlete in college, but I have a hard time with the way we treat our athletes these days because, you know, unless we start paying football players and basketball players what they're really worth, I think college sports needs to take a back seat and we need to focus on their educations. Absolutely. Let, let me pipe in on that too. Um, and, and Dr. Cole kind of hit on it. We really live in an internet generation and I call it a, a microwave internet generation where instant gratification is a huge thing. Uh, and, and, you know, some smart people have caught a hold of that. And, and you've seen the rise of things like Datacamp, Coursera, edX, where a person can come in and over, you know, a six-month period, a 12-month period, learn at their pace for, I mean, a very, very small percentage of what they would have to pay if they went to a four-year university or college to do the same thing. So when we talk about, like, concrete steps that we can take, uh, especially as people of color, this might be a good time for um, people of color who are educated, and people of color who have the financial resources to back them to actually start developing platforms like this where we can scholarship our own and give our own the opportunity to come onto these platforms and get the education that they need to then go out and actually be competitive in the workplace. Just a thought. Absolutely. Great point. You want to finish up for us, Danny, before we close out for today? Um, yeah, what I, what I did want to talk about is putting our money into our own schools, into our own sectors, because none of this, um, I think uh, Dr. Givens touched on a lot of uh, historically black colleges and universities um, having financial issues. And a lot of that comes from alumni who graduate, get the education, get the job, and then they don't funnel the money back into the school. So um, I think we have to, on some level, especially in higher education, become, um, become people who are in the forefront of giving back to our own communities. Because what I see a lot of is these are all the things that we need to do, but I don't want to do it with my money. And that doesn't work. So, and, and it's, it's not just education. We have to funnel our money back into our own businesses and our own practices and our own, but for whatever reason, we are choosing not to. We're choosing to not educate our children. We're choosing to be okay. I am on um, the textbook adoption committee and I am surprised at how many things are being pulled from our textbooks and what our kids don't know about Native American culture, about Latin culture, about African American culture. The things that are being taken out of our books and the things if we don't teach our kids, if we don't educate them, if we just leave it up to the school system, they are going to be, um, 
they are not going to know. They're going to be at a loss. So it's our job with our higher education schools to give back to them um, in more than a few ways and to be pillars in our community and say, hey, these are options. And I think some, I forgot who it was who touched on options, but we have to, to also give our students options, educate them. Maybe college isn't your thing, but here's a black owned business that needs this. You know, we, it's our job to educate them. Um, so that what I really want to focus on is where are we putting our money? Are we really serious about making a change in higher ed? Because if we are, then our money should reflect it. Wow. Some great points. Some, some really uh, actionable steps that we can take some great perspectives and historical context about everything that's happening. And also some steps that um, we can uh, provide for allies or those that want to affect change. What are some things that we need to do as a community? What are some things that we uh, should do and um, need to do in higher education? How can we guide students? And then also how can we affect change in society and find ways to change some of these racial disparities. We all agree that education is definitely a way to do it, but business ownership is a way to do it. Just being aware of some of the options, career college is a way to do it. HBCUs are also an option. So we wanna definitely um, open up dialogue and continue to open up dialogue so that we can affect change, so that we can um, call on the greater society at hand to also raise their voices and also have an understanding of like Dr. Gibbons talked about systemic and like Don also eloquently talked about the systemic, the system that we all are in and, and how it affects um, black and brown um, people and our ability to be successful within this framework. Uh, Dr. Gibbons said this that is in terms of tokenism, sometimes people tend to say, oh, you know, you're fine. And, and no, I'm not fine because I have a whole host of people behind me that I wanna open up the door for. And it's our duty and it's, it's definitely our responsibility to do that. And I'm so blessed and so grateful that you all lend your voices to this today and really shared some very valuable insights with our listeners. And I really appreciate everything that you've contributed to this dialogue. Thank you all for you. sharing yes. with me today. Thank Thanks for having us. Thank Absolutely. Thanks for having it's us. A pleasure. Thank you again and um, take care. Hope you enjoyed that episode. I just want to remind you that this episode was sponsored by MDT Marketing. MDT Marketing is a team of strategic marketing consultants, digital advertising specialists, and technology system gurus, whose goal is to inspire people to learn, organizations to innovate, and to assist in the eventual democratization of education. They create education, marketing, and technology programs that improve people's lives. To learn more about MDT Marketing and the services they offer, including digital advertising, marketing technology, and targeted messaging and ad campaigns, please visit www.mdtmarketing.com. 
Once again, that's www.mdtmarketing.com. And to learn more about the EdUp experience, please visit us at www.edupexperience.com. That's www.edupexperience.com. And please feel free to rate, review, subscribe, and share this podcast. We really, really appreciate your support. You've been listening to The Ed Up Experience, where we make education your business with your host, Elizabeth Liba, and support from my amazing co-hosts, Elvin Freitas and Joe Salustio.